You're now listening to the TaxSmart REI Podcast, the number one tax podcast for real estate investors. Your source for all things real estate, accounting, and tax. Here, we reveal our secrets that can save you thousands in taxes, streamline your accounting process, and help grow your business. Stay tuned to hear insightful interviews with industry experts, successful real estate investors, and current clients on what strategies they use to grow their business and how they steer clear of Uncle Sam. Hey, thanks for tuning into this episode of the Tax Smart REI Podcast. In this week's episode, Ryan and I are joined with host of Bigger Pockets on the Market Podcast, best-selling author and real estate investor Dave Meyer to discuss his expert outlook on the 2024 single-family, multifamily, and short-term rental markets, and also why it's critical to start with strategy and tips for developing a real estate strategy that aligns with your long-term goals and more. This is likely the last market-oriented episode we'll do for a while, so we're excited to dive into all that in just one minute. Hey, real estate CPAs out there. Are you feeling worn out by the routine of conventional CPA firms? Well, listen up. We're hiring and we might just have what you're looking for. Our firm breaks the mold. We're not for those satisfied with the usual grind. And if you're someone who's passionate about excellence and innovation, here's what we have to offer. Break free of endless time tracking. Join one of the fastest growing CPA firms as listed by the Inc. 5000. Dive deep into the specialization of real estate. Be at the forefront of cutting edge technology. Enjoy the luxury of being 100% remote. Yes, say goodbye to those daily commutes. Mutes, reap performance-based rewards that truly mirror your contributions and not just the time that you put in, and collaborate with some of the brightest minds in the industry. We're actively recruiting senior tax advisors for our U.S.-based roles. If you're interested, you can learn more and apply today by visiting www.therealestatecpa.com careers. If you are interested, now is your chance. Again, you can learn more and apply today by visiting www.therealestatecpa.com careers. We look forward to hearing from you, but for now, we're going to dive right into today's episode. Dave, thanks for joining us today. For those who might not be familiar, would you be able to give our listeners a little information on your background and how you got involved in real estate? Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate you being here. My name is Dave Meyer. I've been real estate investor for 14 years. I started uh, just a year out of college and was really just looking for any sort of side hustle. I was waiting tables and just wanted some money on the side. And a friend of mine was doing it and bought a property for really cheap and was making all this money. And I was just pretty jealous, to be honest. And so I uh, figured out a way to scrap together my first deal. And uh, since then, I've been investing a lot. And then about eight years ago, I joined Bigger Pockets. Uh, if you know that company, it's a big resource for real estate investors. And I've been working there full time for the last eight years. My current title is the vice president of market intelligence, which is a job I really love. I get to just study the housing market and understand different strategies and what's working for investors, what's not working, and share what I learned with the large Bigger Pockets audience. That's awesome. I'm a big fan of the show that you run um, on the market. It's a Bigger Pockets podcast. You guys could find it on all the podcast platforms out there. You know, we've had a few guests on the show who are primarily investors, and they've given us some of their thoughts on their view on the 2024 market and what they think is going to happen in 2024. But I know, like like you just mentioned, you study the stuff in depth. You're always talking to different people. From a general like overview of the market, I know it's localized and there's different segments and we'll get into some of that. But like from a general overview, what do you see happening in 2024? 
On a national basis, I think that the market is going to start to improve a little bit. And I think it's important because when a lot of people talk about, quote unquote, the market, they just think about prices. But in any economic situation, when you talk about a market, prices are one variable, but quantity and how many homes are sold are the other variable. And I think the thing that's really been difficult for real estate investors and real estate professionals for the last year or two is that that quantity piece has really slowed down. We've seen that from 2021 to now, volume, total home sales is down like 50%. And so that really jams up the market in a lot of ways that we can talk about. But we're starting to see some improvement there that new, more people are listing their homes for sale. You know, mortgage rates are still relatively high relative to the last decade or so, but they've come down from their their peak back in October. And so we're starting to see the market thaw a little bit. We are nowhere close to a healthy market, but I think we're going to see improvement in that regard slowly over the course of the year. And everyone wants to know what I think prices are going to do. I think the most likely scenario is that we see a relatively modest year in the market where some housing markets go up by 2 or 3%, some maybe go down 1% or 2%, and we're going to be relatively close to flat is my best guess, at least as of now in January 24. You think overall there's going to be more inventory, more houses that are on, but prices might not move too much is kind of ultimately kind of what you're saying for the, the national level. Yeah, I think that the interesting dynamic that's probably the most important thing to watch in the coming year is how much supply moves, because there's a well-known relationship between mortgage rates and demand. We know that when mortgage rates go down, more people want to buy homes. We've already started to see that from October to now. The big question is, will lower rates increase supply at the same time? And people might be wondering, like, why would interest rates impact supply? And it's really a unique situation to the housing market because 70% of people who sell their homes go on to buy a new home. And so when mortgage rates are high, maybe it's a good time to sell because you'll get a good price, but it's not an attractive time for the seller to go on and buy their next home. And so we see that a lot of people haven't been selling their homes. Now, the question is, when rates come down, will that trend reverse and we'll see proportionate increases of supply and demand at the same time. And that's why I think it will be kind of flat as we'll see a little bit more supply, a little bit more demand. Um, and it's not going to be this unbalanced thing where we see all this new demand without any more supply. And so that's sort of the basis of my prediction. Some markets are definitely going to go up a bit though. Um, the ones that have the biggest supply demand imbalances and some markets are going to go down for sure. Are there any specific markets, you know, investors or people who are maybe looking to buy a home in 2024 should keep an eye on in terms of that might rapidly appreciate or ones that maybe are going to go down? It's really hard to predict, but for the last, let's say, 18 months, the theme of the markets that have performed the best is affordability. And affordability has a very specific definition in housing. And it's basically how easily the average American or the average resident of a given area can afford a home in that area. And the markets that are more affordable are having the strongest demand. And you might think that's always true, but it's not. During the pandemic, for example, we saw expensive cities like Austin, Texas, or Seattle, or Las Vegas really start to explode. Whereas since rates went up, and this kind of makes sense, right, is like you see areas, particularly in the Midwest, 
And some areas in the Northeast, particularly Western New York, like Buffalo, Syracuse, Rochester, those have been the hottest housing markets over the last 12 months. And I do think they'll stay strong, but we'll start to see some of the more traditional markets that perform well start to rev up again. That's probably places in the Southeast, you know, a lot of Florida, you know, the Carolinas have been really hot and will probably stay that way. In terms of markets that will go down, I think it's continue to be two dynamics that you should look for. One is unaffordable markets. You know, people just, you can't afford to buy, that's going to reduce demand, right? It's pretty simple. The other one is if there's a place where there's like an oversupply of housing, and you see that in a couple of Western markets where there's just been a ton of building, and it is multifamily building, so it's a little bit different, but it makes renting more appealing to people than buying a home. So I primarily invest in Denver. It's a perfect example of this. They've overbuilt multifamily like crazy there. And it's it makes it, people still want to buy houses, but the calculus that an average person does and says like, should I rent a home or should I buy a home? When there's an oversupply of apartments and people are offering discounts, it's really appealing to just keep renting for a little while. And so I think that puts downward pressure on a lot of these markets, at least in the short term. And I should mention that those markets are often ones that have the strongest fundamentals. So it's probably a short-term decline, but in 2024, they do pose some risk. Would you say anything different? You were kind of talking about like, at least in my opinion, kind of those single family homes, like someone's going to buy a primary residence. Would you say much different in kind of your outlook for like the rental, like a single family rental? Is there any difference there, distinction? Not much. I do think there... You know, if you're looking at rentals, again, the Midwest and the Northeast, in some pockets of the South still, offer the best cash flow potential. And so I do think there will be outsized investor demand in those types of markets, um, especially big cities, you know, Columbus, Ohio, Indianapolis, places like that are, are very popular. And so we'll probably continue to see uh, investor demand there. But um it's probably generally the, the correlation between investor interest in a market and home buyer interest are pretty similar. No, that's good to know. And it kind of makes sense, right? Like investors would probably want to buy where homeowners would want to live in a sense, right? Just shifting briefly away from uh, the single family market. Do you see any major trends in multifamily perhaps that people should be aware of? Yeah, I mean, the multifamily market is totally different than the residential market right now. And so I should say that everything I've been talking about previously is residential. Listen, I mean, the, the multifamily market is in a correction. There's really no other way to put it. It's down probably 10 to 15% in most markets. Uh, people smarter than I am who are really experienced operators who I trust think it could go down another 10 or 15%. And again, that's not everywhere. It's going to be different in individual markets, but... I think there is still a lot of unanswered questions in the multifamily market that poses a lot of risk. For example, there is something that's called like the bid ask difference, like what people are willing to pay and what sellers are willing to sell for. And it's at one of the highest it's ever been. So there's just not a lot of agreement on what assets are worth. And that to me is not something I would want to buy into personally, because that could go in one of two directions and cap rates, which is the way that multifamily assets are valued mostly, 
are still very low compared to where you might think they would be given where interest rates are and bond yields are. And so I'm not saying it will keep going down for sure, but to me, there's a lot more downside risk in multifamily than there is in the residential market. It seems like a lot of the risk discrepancy and kind of the bid ask kind of boils down to the interest rates and how those have been moving. And we've had other people on the show where, hey, we've got like this bridge financing that's going on, kind of new kind of syndicators. If they're not getting long-term debt, they're kind of doing this bridge to kind of make a deal work and be attractive. Do you find and kind of what you're thinking that it is really driven by the interest rate and kind of that kind of skyrocketing over the last year or so? I definitely think that's a major piece of this is that unlike residential mortgages, which are typically fixed debt over a long period of time, most commercial debt is five to seven years with a balloon payment. And so that means that every year, on average, 14% of all commercial loans are coming due. And so right now, if that's true, and 14% of all commercial loans are coming due, they're going to be refinancing at a much, much higher rate. Now, if you bought back in 2016 and you're refinancing, like you're probably going to be okay. But you know, if you bought in 2019, 2020, and you had a shorter term debt, then you might be in a serious situation where you are not able to, you know, refinance and remain cash flow positive and selling your property is no longer attractive because you might be underwater. Um, and so I do think this this financing piece is really big. But I will also mention, I think the other piece that a lot of people overlook, it still has to do with interest rates, but is more about what's called like a risk premium. And so there is this term that to describe US treasuries, for example, that are called risk-free assets. Nothing is actually risk-free, but you know, a treasury bond is as close as you can get to a risk-free asset. And so you're right now, a risk-free asset is four and a half or 4%. That's pretty good. Meanwhile, cap rates on multifamily are, you know, you might earn a 5% cash on cash return. So why would you take the risk of buying multifamily in this type of market to get a 1% better cash on cash return than the safest investment in the entire world? It just doesn't make sense. And so I think that's why this pricing exercise or this price discovery is going on is like buyers it's just not appealing option right now with cap rates where they are. As long as rates stay as high as they are, like it seems that most investors who would want to buy multifamily, myself included, are just content to say like, I'm just going to keep my money in bonds and see what happens. And the pressure is going to go on the sellers, right? Because I can wait and earn 4%. They are going to have to refinance and it's going to force the issue with a lot of sellers. Um, so that's my fear about it, or, or at least reason I'm sort of waiting to see what's going to happen. That's a great outlook. And I think a lot of people are on the sidelines right now as well, kind of waiting it out because, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty. And with uncertainty, that's kind of what happens. One more market we want to ask about, and then we'll kind of dive into the next segment here. With short-term rentals, what do you see that those have been a wildly popular asset class over the last, you know, three or four years or so? And we've seen the boom kind of during COVID. And now, it seems like the market's starting to normalize, at least from what we're seeing. What's your take on the short-term rental market and where do you see that in 2024? I do own a short-term rental, so I am a little biased, but I think that they are pretty solid investments if you're going to operate them really well. 
My general feeling is that like with most new industries, there is this period of inefficiency that benefits early adopters. Like you can just get in there and no one knows what they're doing and you should just like go and figure it out and you get rewarded for taking on the risk, right? Like that's the reward of going into short-term rentals before everyone else and it's been systematized. And now I just think that era is over and it's become an efficient market like most other asset classes. And it's just going to become like long-term rentals where like you can still make money if you're a good operator, but you can't just buy anything and stick it on Airbnb and have it cash flow because supply is just up. Like the amount of Airbnbs or short-term rentals, I should say, are up a lot and demand has really flattened off. And that's just going to hurt some operators. And so I think it's still a good asset class, just like it's hard to buy long-term rentals in a high interest rate environment. It's going to be hard to buy short-term rentals in a high interest rate environment. But I still think like I, unlike some other sort of trendy or flashy real estate strategies, I do think short-term rentals are like here to stay. It's just, there's going to be this short-term pain because a lot of people I think rushed into it before they really understood or bought at a really inopportune time. Hey, real quick, if you're a longtime listener of the show, then you know we give all of our tax secrets away for free, from how to use the real estate professional status and short-term rental loophole to save thousands of dollars in taxes, and just about everything in between, we don't hold anything back. And that's because our goal is to help as many real estate investors as possible reduce taxes and build tax advantage wealth, regardless of budget. And the only way we're able to help more real estate investors is if you can rate, review, and share the podcast. If you could take that one small action, just drop us a review. It'll take like 10 seconds. It will help more real estate investors become tax smart. We appreciate your support. And now back to the show. Are you looking in a specific market for short-term rentals as far as like, hey, if I'm looking to buy, I'm kind of pushing people towards this area. Is there anything specific like that that you could give us? No, you know, I spend less time analyzing that, but my general feeling about short-term rentals is that you want to be in a place where the risk of regulatory change is low. And those tend to be markets where the economy is centered on tourism. And I say this because a lot of major metro areas are restricting or outright banning short-term rentals. And that can happen without warning, and you have absolutely no control over that. And so if you're going to buy in those type of areas, that's fine, but it should work as a long-term rental too, in case that happens. For example, the one short-term rental I own is in a ski town and they have increased my taxes, but I don't think they have any interest in banning short-term rentals because it is an enormous revenue source for the government and it brings pretty much all of the economic activity to the region is, you know, this tourism and there's not a lot of hotels. So I think like you need to like look at the incentives of the people and the government in the area. And while I too totally understand why some places don't want short-term rentals, some places do. And I would just rather be in a place where you're welcomed and appreciate like the economic benefit that it brings. I think Dave, before we change topics, all of our listeners are probably wondering if you took advantage of the short-term rental loophole. So did you take advantage of that? I haven't, although I would like to. <laughs> but so I live in Europe. And so even though it is a smaller time commitment for your material participation, I haven't been able to do it yet. 
Okay. You're using the right words. So maybe we can talk about <laughs> that offline. That's great. Well, yeah, I've uh, I've read up about it because it does seem very appealing. And I would if I was in the States. That's awesome. And I appreciate you you breaking that down. Short-term rental markets for everybody out there who wants to jump in in 2024, viable. Uh, it's just you have to operate like a business. You have to know which markets to invest in. And you can't just throw up any property on Airbnb. And I think we've covered that a lot here on the show. And I think this will hopefully put that nail in the coffin, at least for now. So Dave, I'd like to shift gears a little bit. I know you just came out with a new book, Start With Strategy. And you know I'm a big believer that you, know, you need action to ultimately get to success. However, if you're taking action on the wrong thing, uh, you might end up not in the place you want to be. So that's what makes strategy so important, right? We'll dive through kind of what you have in the book and everything like that. But for people who may not understand the difference between like, say, strategy and tactics, uh, what is, you know, from a high level, what is strategy? Yeah, strategy is a plan to achieve a long-term goal. That, that's basically what it is. And it's not all that complicated. And I think the important piece of it for real estate investors is that there are a lot of good ways to invest in real estate, like short-term rentals, good option, long-term rentals, good option, flipping, good option. But what is your long-term goal? And most newer investors that I come across have great intentions, have a lot of inspiration and motivation, but they haven't started where I think people should start, which is like, what is your long-term goal and what are you trying to accomplish? Because in my mind, to be successful, it is so helpful to have clarity of purpose. Like once you know what you're doing and why you want to do it, then being motivated, figuring out the right tactics becomes easy. But if you're sort of vague about what you're doing in the first place, then it could be really hard to decide what moves to make. Absolutely. So some of the common real estate strategies out there, what are the most common strategies you're seeing people uh, jump into perhaps in 2024 for those who might just be getting started in real estate right now? So in the book, just to use some terms, like I consider strategy for me is like portfolio level. So when I talk about my strategy, I'm thinking about all the resources I got, the time I'm putting into it, all of this. And I consider like a flip versus a short-term rental, a tactic. And most people call that a strategy. So that's totally fine. I'm just using the nomenclature of the book. So I think a lot of tactics work right now. It's really just adapting to what's going on in market conditions. So I, for example, am still buying long-term rentals. I think long-term rentals always make sense. I am using less debt than I would normally do. So I think that's a, a tactic that's really popular right now. And then I think generally speaking, the other thing I'm a big fan of right now is value add. And this is a term that's used to, you know, this is what flippers do. They buy something that's not at its highest and best use, and then they bring it up to that. But Rental property investors can do this. Short-term rental investors can do it. And it's I, the reason it's working so well right now is because of this just interesting market dynamic where assets that are stabilized, which is just a term that means like really, you know, in a good condition, have held their prices very well and are actually going up. Assets that are not in great conditions have been declining. And so the spread between what you can buy for and what you could sell for has increased actually over the last year or two in most markets. And so I think value add, if you're willing to do renovations, is a really good tactic that works particularly well. And then the last one that is probably more appropriate for any accredited investors out there, but lending is great. If you're in a high interest rate environment and if you uh, are accredited, you can get into lending funds um, and they offer great cash on cash returns. 
That's a great overview. So for, for your strategy, how did you end up developing your strategy for real estate investing? Why why do you currently have your current strategy in place? It's been a honestly like a 14-year process to figure out like how to come up with a strategy because I just was flying by the seat of my pants and just like doing whatever felt right in the moment for the majority of my investing career. Like someone would be like, oh, you should do a burr. I'm like, okay, I'll just do a burr. And then someone would be like, oh, buy a rental, short-term rental. And I just go do that. And I realized I like some of them. I don't like some of them. And then it just started getting really time consuming to me. And I was like, wait a minute, I got into this to spend less time working, not working more. And I work full time. So if you do this full time, it might be different. But I decided to just like take a step back and just think about what I actually wanted with my life. And that was really helpful in helping me pick real estate tactics. And so I thought about my personal values. I thought about the time I wanted to spend on my portfolio, my own risk tolerance, what my financial goals are, when I want to retire. And I just sat with that for a while and came up with like a really clear vision of what I wanted to accomplish. And once I did that, I was like, okay, I'm not doing major renovation projects. I'm not going to be a flipper. I'm going to outsource all my property management. I'm only doing, uh, you know, I'm going to invest a lot into syndications and funds. And like everything just became really clear for me then because I was like, I don't want to be a full-time real estate investor. And I love real estate. I'm paid. I am paid to talk about real estate all day. And I just don't want to, I like talking about it. I don't want to be renovating projects all week. That's not what I want to do. And so once I figured out what I wanted, then I could, I sort of redesigned my strategy. I sold off some properties. I reallocated a lot of uh, resources to support the life I want, which now is very different than it was when I started. I live in Europe now. You know, I work full time still, but like I don't have time to do things. I don't want the headache. And so I've really just created a portfolio that supports my lifestyle rather than what happens a lot, I think, is the other way around. People build their portfolio and it starts running your life. And for most people, that's the opposite of why you get into it in the first place. Absolutely. And I, I know for some people, they have kind of this vision of what they want with their life. And over time, as they go through different seasons, right, they might go from single to then married, and then they have kids, and then they're looking to retire. And so that vision might be like a couple of years, a really long time, like decades. So as people maybe change their their vision or what they want, do you feel like it's kind of like, well, just continue to like reevaluate that vision kind of on a certain basis or something? Or how do you kind of think through like maybe people who are constantly changing, not constantly as in every day, but on a regular basis, they're kind of changing what they want. How do you kind of think through that and developing their strategy? That's a great question. I think it's important to strike the right balance. And first and foremost, having a long-term goal, I think is really helpful. So for me, I think, you know, I'm, I'm 36 years old right now. I'm not one of those people who wants to retire early, maybe a little early, like 55. So like 20 years from now, you know? And so that's sort of my long-term goal. I have to think about that when I make decisions and say, okay, I would like to have the option to stop working in 20 years from now. Um, and that is really helpful. And I try to not change that and think, oh, you know, changing that every year. That said, I think you need sort of like a three-year plan always. Um, and so that's sort of what I outlined in the book too, because just as an example, like when I first started, I would have done any deal like someone would give me money for. Like I absolutely didn't care. I would have just done it. 
Now I'm much more selective. Like a couple of years ago, I was in grad school and I needed the cash to pay off my tuition, you know, and so I did less, you know, renovation projects because that money went to grad school. And so I always sort of keep this three-year plan, but I change the three-year plan annually, if that makes sense. You know, like I want to think a few years out, like a middle-term goal, but you need to be flexible. And so I try and reset my goals once a year and not more than that because you need time to execute. Uh, real estate's not one of these quick things. You sort of need time. And obviously, if something's blatantly not working, you change course. But I think that's personally how I strike the right balance is like this one big long-term goal that doesn't change. And then every year, I come up with a new three-year plan that I start to work on. Well, these are great insights. And uh, I've refreshed my goals every year as well. And I finally got the vision down. Like I, I got 10 years, three years, and then one year. It's it's very difficult, I feel like, to go. Like I have a North Star, right? But then like it's very hard to go beyond 10 years in terms of planning. I just feel like it's so far ahead. Uh, so definitely like the way you broke that down. I know you, you've written another book too, Real Estate by the Numbers. For those who, who might want to pick up both books, what are the difference really between Real Estate by the Numbers and Start with Strategy and where should someone start? So Start with Strategy is really a tactical, like hands-on step-by-step guide to formulating a strategy. So in the book, you basically, I'll teach all the background information, all the financial information you need to know about real estate investing. But then it actually poses questions and there are exercises in the book that are like, what's your time horizon? What's your risk tolerance? There are quizzes, there are Excel documents that come with it to really help you build out your vision, to build out what I call your deal design. So like sort of like a buy box and then make real-time portfolio management decisions. So it's really sort of a you know, A to Z thing to help you build your portfolio level strategy in the long term. Real Estate by the Numbers is more of a reference guide for people who want to get really good at analyzing deals. So that's sort of one of my big passions. I love Excel. I'm sure you guys, given your given your profession, are, are familiar, but I love like it's like my happy place to like play around with Excel and analyze deals. Um, and so uh, I wrote a book with Jay Scott, who's a fantastic investor. And it's just basically different metrics that you can use, how to keep track of your um, portfolio, different ways to evaluate loan terms, different ways to think about deal performance. And while you can read it all the way through, I think most people use it as a reference guide. Like when they're analyzing a deal, they'll pull it out and be like, what does that term mean? And it helps them uh, do that. But I didn't think anyone was going to buy that book, but people really like it. So I'm, I'm happy about it. <laughs> yeah, well, always into those numbers books. And I have that. I have that on my bookshelf. I have to go through and finish reading it. It's just, uh, that's, there's just a lot. There's just a lot. It's a lot of math. Yeah. yeah. It's like, and man, if I can give people some advice, don't get the audiobook. Some people are like, oh, I got the audiobook. I'm like, why would you want to listen to math formulas? Like, you need to see it in front of you. But that said, I get people all the time who are like, I pull it out, you know, every couple of weeks, I pull it out every couple of months. It's almost like a textbook in that way. We'd like to think that it's more readable than a textbook, but it's that kind of content where it's more just like, here are the numbers you need to know. It's very objective information. Whereas start with strategy is much more subjective. It's like here, you know, what are your opinions? What are your feelings about real estate and how to use them? And, you know, math is just math. Where where can listeners, by the way, where can they get a copy of these books if they want to grab one? 
Yeah. So you can find them on Amazon. Uh, they're available there. Or you can find them on biggerpockets.com slash strategy book. Um, and we currently have a promotion there where you get some extra bonuses um, if you order it from biggerpockets.com. But you can get them really, or Barnes and Nobles, like really anywhere books are sold. You know, it's interesting. I, I sold them at, um, I, I was flying somewhere. I forgot where it was. I sold them at the airport uh, at the airport uh, thing. And I was yes. in the bookstore. I was like, wow. I'm like, you know, it's big when it, you, you see in the airport bookstore. In the airport. I saw my own book in the airport bookstore and it might've been like the coolest, like surreal experience I've had as an author. It's like, it's cool, you know, seeing it in Barnes and Nobles, but like I'm next there to like to Danielle Steele and like, you know, the Prince Harry book. And I'm like, why is this book here? And I'm just happy people are buying it. That's awesome. I got one more question for you. What habits like so, you know, if someone wants to get to financial freedom, which I know a lot of people here listening to the show do and a lot of people in general, what is like the biggest habit that you think investors could get into that would be able to help them reach that goal of financial freedom? Yeah. So I know this is kind of redundant for what we we're saying before, but I, I find that like motivation comes from clarity of purpose, like we were talking about. So like really just nailing down what you want has been really helpful to me in my life and not just in real estate investing, like in most of my goals, whether it's, you know, personal relationships or fitness or anything like that, like being very clear about what you want. And that sounds so easy, but it's not like, it's really kind of challenging to really know what you want. But once you do, I found it, I find motivation comes really easily uh, when you do that hard work. So um, it's not like a specific, I guess it is a habit of like just continuously like evaluating your goals just in all parts of your life, I find is like the number one thing that's helped me succeed. No, it's a great takeaway. I, I got to tell you, like I did my my year end planning uh, towards the end of, of last year, 2023 in December, and I feel like I have more clarity because I have more clarity, I have more motivation to go out there and just, you know, crush it, do what's got to get done on a day to day basis because of that clarity. And without that clarity, it's kind of like, you know, what am I doing? Like, is this going to get me to where I want to go? And it's, yeah, so I definitely have to agree with that. Dave, I want to thank you again for coming on the show today, sharing your knowledge about the 2024, what we have coming as well as strategy, super important topic. We're going to drop all that stuff into the show notes. Any final words before we part today? No, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate your time. And again, if anyone wants to check out the book, you can do that at biggerpockets.com slash strategy book. All right. Thanks again for jumping on today. Appreciate it. Thanks, Dave. Thanks for listening to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please find us on iTunes and leave us a review. You can also email us at contact at therealestatecpa.com with any feedback or topic suggestions. We are always taking on new clients and with the new tax laws in play, you really don't want to navigate this alone. Let us help you save money on taxes and with your accounting and CFO needs. To become a client, navigate to our client page at therealestatecpa.com and fill out a web form with as much detail about your situation as possible. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great rest of your week.